Hello, I'm Liam Gammon, I'm the editor of New Mandala, and if you're listening to this, you're probably aware that on the 9th of May, Malaysia held its 14th general election, or GE14 for short. You also probably know that for the first time ever, Malaysia saw a change of government at the federal level. Obviously, there are plenty of big questions about how and why GE14 had such an unexpected result, and there are a few people better placed to answer those questions than Bridget Welsh. She's Associate Professor of Political Science at John Cabot University, and she's widely acknowledged as one of the world's foremost experts on contemporary Malaysian politics. On the 21st of May, she gave a public lecture on GE14, hosted by the Malaysia Institute here at the Australian National University. New Mandala was there to record the whole thing, and it's a long one, about an hour and a half, but I can assure you that it's well worth listening to. As usual, we didn't mic the audience, so I'll just pop in to paraphrase any questions from the floor. Uh, thank you very much, Ross, uh, for your kind in, uh, introduction, and thanks also for your very hard work that you're doing at the Malaysia Institute, helping to put Malaysia on the map at ANU. Um, uh, for those of you who, uh, who, who understand these issues, Malaysia always feels a sense of being overlooked and is now very happy that it's even overshadowing the neighbor of Indonesia, at least for temporary, until next year's elections, perhaps. Uh, all right, well, um, <clears throat> I'm going to uh, speak briefly uh, about uh, a number of issues, uh, and, and I, what I hope to do is engender uh, a sense of um, <clears throat> Uh, under re recognition of the complexities of what's happening in Malaysia um, and not just focus on the election. Okay, <clears throat> let's start with the results because I think it's useful for us to think about what happened and why. Okay? So first thing to point out is that we do have a national swing of about 10.8% in voting behavior. As analysts of elections know, this is a considerable change. A 5% swing in voting is, is considered important. A 10% is significant. And so, but in some areas, it actually goes up to 30% in these polling districts that we've seen. And you'll, I'll show you a couple examples in a few moments in Johor, Negri Sembilan. But I want to point out something that I think is a misnomer in the press, is that this is not a landslide victory. In fact, Pakatan Harapan has won less popular vote than Pakatan Rakyat did. And in fact, it's only barely with including some of the independents, 50%. So the important thing to remember here is that 50%, half the country didn't vote for Harapan, while half the country did uh, in that discussion. And, I, and so it is, and the margin that Harapan has in terms of seats all right, is less than 15, which is not a very large margin, especially given some of the fractious nature of the coalition itself right, in this discussion. Right? So it is, you know, people think about this as a landslide. It's a, la it's a, it's a massive swing, but not a landslide victory. But in the context of Malaysian history, it's seen as momentous because, of course, it's the first time in 61 years you have a new government an alternative government. So that's why we see part of this framing in this context. Huh? All right, so he, we can see some of these discussions huh, um, in, in this area. Huh? All right, now, the other thing to understand about Pakatan Harapan's victory is that it is, it is a Malaysian victory. 
Now, why do I use that terminology? In that it came from all over the country, all over the states, different states, and from rural areas as well as semi-rural and urban areas. So it is representative. And, and so we can see from the perspective of understanding Malaysian politics, Pakatan Harapan has become the mantle for the nation. It's replaced Barisan Nasional as the governing coalition. And it's done so in a very broad representative way. Uh, and I think one of the things I highlight here is that I think if there was one thing I really got wrong, we all got some things wrong, we got some things right, but the one thing I really got wrong was the rural and semi-rural seats in Sarawak that went for the government, went for the new government. And that if we look at the seats of the 113, uh, 26 of them come from East Malaysia. These places, Sabah and Sarawak, that were seen as the safe deposit areas. They are no longer safe deposit. The money has moved <laughs> into a different area. The support pattern has moved. And I, I point this out because in 2013, uh, people talked about how East Malaysia helped to support Najib and to put him into power. Right? And in fact, that was clearly, if without East Malaysia, he would not have won. Right? But the same thing can be said without East Malaysia, Harapan would not have won as well. And the dynamics in Sabah are slightly different than the dynamics in Sarawak. Uh, but Sarawak is fantastic, very interesting given the gains in these more rural areas, uh, which are, I think, many unexpected. And I think reflect the hard work on the ground, which I'll come to a little bit later uh, in that area. Now, if someone like Marcus was here, who's not here yet right now, and he would, he would say, oh, it's all, about, uh, it's all about the gerrymandering and it's all about the uh, uh, electoral manipulation. We all know uh, in March they introduced a wide scoping, um, wide, bro broad um, uh, redelineation package that affected at least a third of the competitive seats. Huh? It was seen as their safety net. Huh? to control the system. But it was based on a couple set of assumptions of which the election itself was able to overcome. One of those was that it was based on the assumption of creating more Malay majority seats. And the Malay vote was divided. And it was based on the assumption that the margins would be close. And the margins in many seats were not close. So they couldn't cheat. It doesn't mean that they didn't try. Hmm? But in many cases, those boxes that were being brought in were found out in a number of incidents. Ballots were thrown around. Huh? So in that context, the, the ability for them to manipulate the system hmm, was undercut by the types of swings and the area of the swings where these things happen. They were no longer close races uh, in some of the areas, so their calculations were, became wrong. Hmm? Uh, but in understanding this victory, right, in terms of seats and others, we can still see the impact of malapportionment uh, on the fact that the, the, the low numbers that Pakatan Harapan actually has. All right, it's still not fully representative huh, uh, in terms of uh, some aspects because the if you actually look at the support in the urban areas, it would actually where there's higher malapportionment, it would have actually been uh, 
more seats in the, in the larger process. Um, <clears throat> the other thing to keep in mind about this shifting change is that everyone is focusing on the federal level because this is where this, it's new, right? The change at the 60, after, after so many years, huh? and they are, after many years than I, when I, it was before I was born, at least in this one, in one age we can actually say these things, right? As we get older, right? But in the context of, uh, of, of the, the kind of, I think what's gonna be very interesting to watch is the sweepingness of the victories at the state levels. Now Pakatan Harapan controls nine state governments, nine, <laughs> three of which are very close, Kedah, Sabah, and Perak. Uh, but they, uh, they've consolidated their, they consolidated their position over the key economic states uh, in the country. BN controls two, Pahang and Sarawak. And Sarawak would like to switch <laughs> in these possibles, right? So in these states, it's interesting because many, as those of you, uh, many of you in this room understand Malaysia with, with a tremendous depth, the idea here is that the state governments rely on federal funding. And that federal-state relationship is extremely important in that dynamic. So we're going to see some shifts and areas in this particular dynamic. I want to come back to PAS in a minute, but I want to point out that PAS um, also held on to a number of seats. It only lost three, but it's the re regional area that it won its seats uh, was concentrated now on the east coast of Malaysia um, as opposed to across the country. So it's now moved from being a, uh, a national party to, being, to returning to being a parochial party with national ambitions, which I'll come back to uh, in, in, in a few moments and what that means. Okay, now, these numbers, I want to caution you Caution, 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 caution. Because these are very, very preliminary. These are the things that kept me up late at night as I was redoing the numbers in this context. Now, there are two things that are happening, and uh, John and others can tell you. First of all, the EC seems to be distributing different sets of results than seem to have come out beforehand. So we have, a, we have some issues of data uh, consistency. That's a very nice way of phrasing that, <laughs> consistency. The second issue is that, um, uh, we have to, that doing these type of analyses is best done at a different level of analysis. So uh, most of my analysis of voting behavior is done at the polling district level. Uh, this is why I think it's more rigorous. These analysis was done with a combination of polling districts that I have uh, for uh, about 15 seats, which is not a lot, uh, as well as a combination of state, seat, uh, of state and level of analysis, looking at these numbers. Uh, so it is, it is very, it's meant to be a marker of what we see as these shifts. And I will expect in the next few months I'll have a more rigorous assessment as soon as I get the full set of data and be able to do the full comparison. Um, but let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're seeing so far in understanding the data and what, what that tells us. So we see turnout was reported at 74%. <laughs> um, uh, now the EC is saying it's 83%. The numbers don't seem to yet add, add up. <laughs> but most, uh, looking at the data at the state level, there's a drop of turnout on average about 5% in seats, on average by seat <laughs> in the, across the country. Now, some of that seems to be due to uh, the Wednesday, uh, but a lot of it seems to be happening in government 
areas, uh, civil servants areas, uh, disproportionately in some of the polling districts we see. And what we're seeing from some of the polling is that in fact, much of the turnout levels dropped are BN traditional voters who chose not to come out to vote. They couldn't stomach, they would say to me, I cannot stomach voting for Pakistan again. Uh, but I cannot stand Najib. So, side thing other room, I stay at home. Uh, uh, and this is true for people who hated um, uh, Mahathir in the 80s. Uh, I know some people in the 70s who just couldn't vote for Mahathir, they stayed home. Uh, as well as some of the focus groups that I saw across the country in places like Perak and Pahang and others. Uh, and, and, and a lot of them disproportionately were civil servants. So they decided not to vote as opposed to, although many of them did vote, which I'll come to in a few moments in, in terms of looking at the results. So, but the turnout numbers um, were, was a drop from 85. <laughs> but it's interesting, Chinese turnout, from what we can see so far, was quite high. It only dropped a small amount uh, in that area. So in fact, uh, the perception that there would be such a bigger drop is actually, it seems more a political drop than a, uh, a, a kind of uh, sense of not wanting to be part of the process or anger about it. Uh, sort of, uh, it wasn't really a product of the boycott or anything along those lines in those areas. Just to give you a bit of flavor of the swing, in a seat like Semporna, where Shafi Abdal won his seat, it was a switch of 65%. <laughs> right. You know, to give you the, the scope of it. And in Mulankawi, right, it was a switch of 35%, um, 38% uh, for, for Mahathir. Right? These are, you know, these are, these are landslide type like numbers, right? If you, when you look at the seat by seat, by seat type of uh, discussions. And we can see the biggest swings happen where you have very prominent personalities in the, in the, in the now new government, formerly in opposition in this discussion. Now, <coughs> We see a few things here that I want to unpack. A Malay, the whole campaign for Pakatan was framed around a Malay tsunami. The argument ran as uh, twofold. Number one, that in 2013, there wasn't adequate Malay support. So you had to focus on the, the strategic area where there was seen to be weakness. And number two, huh, all right, that it was perceived that the only way to win and get over the malapportionment and electoral problems was to move people from inside UMNO's base out of it. And that's where Mahathir was seen as the pull factor to pull out uh, the Malay vote. And what we see at this point is a considerable drop in the support for BN and UMNO among Malays. But I want to caution you when you look at that 14%, not all of that <coughs> went to Harapan. Large shares of that, even almost uh, depending on the location, went to PAS. PAS pulled from UMNO. So the three corner contests, which UMNO supported, even maybe financially, um, in that context, they actually ended up hurting themselves in this discussion. And in fact, this was really uh, uh, interesting in that uh, in Kelantan and, and Tringana, which I'll come to a little bit later. Right? So uh, uh, it, it is a, 
uh, split in that type of discussion. Um, and arguably, when we compare UMNO's support of the Malay community and PAS and Harpan's uh, uh, support of the Malay community, the Malay vote is very split among these three different political forces. <laughs> and in fact, preliminary data suggests that from an ethnicized, from a racialized sense, PAS has become the protector of the Malay community, and UMNO has lost that protector role. Whether or not what sort of protection they offer is another question. Uh, we'll come back to that a little bit later. Right? But this is a very interesting sense of kind of the shifts in the Malay vote. So there was a Malay swing, but it wasn't necessarily a swing in the tsunami towards Harapan. And it, is it was extremely important to recognize that it was distributed differently in different parts of the country. AKH Johor it went to Harapan. In places like Kelantan, it went to Pas. In places like Perak, it split. So it, it's actually not, a, it's, it's varied by geographic zone, how much, Malay, where the Malay vote swang to and how, and, and in very interesting sets of ways. And I think this is gonna lead more analysis to, to, uh, to assess this. But what is the most interesting about the Malay vote that moved is that it was a lot of traditional UMNO support. These are people who voted their whole lives for UMNO, who decided to switch. There are a lot of new, what I would say, virgin opposition voters, first-timers hmm, voting for the opposition uh, in this discussion. Huge numbers, right? And you can see this, for example, among taxi drivers, among civil servants, uh, and these would come up repeatedly in the focus groups. First, they would tell you, oh, I'm voting for BN. This is one of the reasons why the polling would actually, you know, there's fear. They're not going to tell you. And then five minutes later, after you've had your tetarag with them, oh, I hate Najib. I'm not voting for him. <laughs> you know, in that type of discussion. You, under the layers of this. Right? And they were, so it, I believe... <laughs> When we think about this, if we want to talk about any sort of tsunami-ish, and I think we have to be cautious in using that word anyway, but if we want to talk about a real wave of change, it's within UMNO itself. And I'm going to come back to that in a few moments. It was among the traditional UMNO lost its lots of its political base in a meaningful way. Now, interestingly enough, in contrast to the Sarawak state elections in 2016, Chinese support moved even closer to the opposition or now government of Harapai. Uh, while some younger people didn't necessarily come back, that support levels seem to have been indicated in that regard. And even Indian support seems to have moved towards Harapan as well. That multi-ethnic, even though polling before the election suggested there would be a swing in the opposite direction. And we're gonna, why am I telling you all of this, why these swings have happened? is because when we talk about the narratives of explaining this election, uh, I, I wanna, one of the narratives that I highlight is the importance of the campaign itself. The momentum in the campaign is changing voting people, voting pa uh, uh, patterns, people feeling more comfortable to, to change to do the opposite side huh? across ethnicities. 
given how the campaign played out. So we'll see this. Urbanization changes not much, but the, change, the interesting changes are in the rural and semi-rural areas. The Sarawak surprises I was telling you about. And of course, these changes in Felda areas in seats, these changes in parts of Perak, like the seat of Tanjung Malim in Perak, which has been, this is that seat, semi-rural areas predominantly, uh, north of Kuala Lumpur in Perak, that seat had been in the MCA's hands since 1957. Never ever changed, and it changed. Multi-ethnic constituency uh, in these areas. So, this is some of the, and then again, I want to, I'm going to reemphasize the word preliminary in, in, in looking at some of these markers of change. Okay, now, let's talk a little bit about what these results mean from a perspective of understanding the nature of the political parties in the system. And, and not just from the perspectives of voters coming out and others. I, but let me, before I move into that, I do want to make a very important point. This is an election where voters in Malaysia took their futures into their own hands. They took risks, and they did so very boldly in coming out and voting. I think there is a palpable sense of political efficacy, especially after the election that you can actually evoke change, um, as well as the sense that there's a huge sense of relief among many, many people. There's like this huge weight that was wetting that people down has, seems to have lifted. And that's true, by the way, of people on the other, both sides, although those that are resistant to the, to the changes now feel new weight, new anxiety. But we'll come back to that in a few moments. Okay, Pakatan Harapan is the new multi-ethnic coalition. Um, and <laughs> it's distributed, obviously, with PKR winning the most seats, DAP uh, shortly thereafter. There's a typo here. This is what happens when you don't have enough sleep. Bursatu, Warasan, and Amana have smaller shares of the seats. Uh, but they're, the interesting thing about this coalition, which is very different than BN, is that it's based on this idea of equality among the different actors, even though they don't have equal representation in parliament. This is something that will be tested. <laughs> but it is a different type of model. So people can say, oh, it's the new multi-ethnic coalition governing Malaysia. But it's not based on the same premise, where the idea was UMNO was in charge and everybody else followed. That is not what is happening now. And this creates some discomfort because it's not quite what people are used to, uh, even those inside the system <laughs> as well. Versata <laughs> uh, controls more state, government represent state governments than it actually uh, represents. And this is really important to note more generally. At the federal and at the state level, Versata has more political power than the seats they have. Uh, and this is something that I, and, and, it, and it is a source of uh, potential instability, which I'll come to a little bit later. Right? So there still is, as we've seen in the cabinet negotiations, and, he, and I think what people have not played, been hearing what's been happening at the state levels, but these things have been equally contentious, eh? is that there is delicate balancing and distribution of power uh, within the different uh, positions of government uh, at, at the federal and state level uh, in that area. And I use the word delicate because I think it captures that, because it is a bit delicate uh, and sensitive. Um, BN is dead. Ironically, the BN was created by Tun Razak and his son killed it. 
Uh, and I, I emphasize this because it is no longer multi-ethnic, and it's no longer a coalition that is, that is really viable. And the people who are left inside of it are trying to find an exit strategy in any meaningful sense, except for UMNO. Okay, but so, and then it's not, and we'll come back to, I'll come to this in a second, right? It is also very important. This was an UMNO defeat. It wasn't a defeat. It was an UMNO decimation in terms of their seats were cut in half. Now, keep in mind in 2013, in the victory that the, uh, that the BN won, disproportionately that was an UMNO victory. Now, UMNO's seats were cut in half. It has only 54 seats, only 24% of the parliament. This is a real, real signal and a test, and, a, and it is, I think, personally, I would put the blame exactly where it deserves. It's because Najib made the party his own and, and, and about himself and not about the party in that context. So PAS, interestingly, they've now gone back to their 1999 East Coast core of controlling the states of Kelantan and Trigano. While it picked up support across the country, and even in parts of the West Coast, um, in terms of, but mostly these were UMNO defections. They won in Tringanu because of a political deal they had made with UMNO. In that they had basically argued that, that Najib had allowed them to control the state and win in the state. Why? Very simply, because this was one of Najib's survival, perceived survival strategies. We can ally with UMNO, post Paschal alumni with UMNO after the election. And so while this deal shaped the dynamics that happened in Turangano, uh, there was also defections, especially among young voters towards PAS. Were very, and so we see this combination of, of bringing UMNO and young people into, into PAS. That's why you see a decisive victory for, for PAS in Tringano. And even, and in Kelantan, all the Kelantanese PAS people were saying to themselves, yo, look what's happening in the south. The Tringano people are going to try to take over us. The pass, so there was tension between the Trungano Pass and Kelantan Pass. So Kelantan Pass had to do as well as uh, Trungano Pass. So there were lots of drivers, political interests within the party, the relationship with the party and UMNO, and the relationship with the voters. Harapan had no meaningful impact in Trungano and Kelantan. Even in Cotabaro, where Hussam Musa was contesting, he, that was the only place people saw any possibility. Why was that? Because in these states, the politics had always been PAS and UMNO. And you'd ask people, like I remember asking in, uh, someone in uh, Pasapute, how about Harapan? Oh, I like Harapan, as, uh, I like hope, but I don't know what Harapan is. <laughs> you know, these type of responses. Uh, even in Jali, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mustafa Muhammad's constituency, uh, very, very well run. I think personally, I always believe this is the best 
example of, of good government on the part of a leader uh, and, and, and supporting his constituency, uh, where you have a lot of outsiders coming in to work in that area. Um, they just said Harappan just doesn't count in those areas uh, in Kalanta because of the framing. And, and this has to, tells you a lot about the nature of Pasa's relationships um, within the, the roots of the part uh, in these societies. And it goes to families uh, and others, and so we can see that the contestation was framed in that regard. And Mahathir played a very different role in, in, in Kelantan and, and Turnganu than he did elsewhere. Uh, in Kelantan, he, he was a negative thing for Harapan. Because keep in mind, in Kelantan and Turnganu, the, the demonization of Mahathir and the, and the views of Mahathir run very deep. Uh, uh, there, was not, there was less um, Mahathir positive factor in that regard. But we'll come back to the, what this means because it's going to be interesting to see how Pass interprets the victory. Did they interpret the victory as is their agenda of, uh, of focusing on religion, which of course some of them are, are going to do, right? or is it, was it that they were benefits of the protest vote and the benefits of the resources they received from UMNO? This is going to be different contestation and framing. And inside the party, which I'll, I'll foreshadow this in a moment, uh, inside the party, I expect that there will be a big contestation uh, and fight inside the party about their respective position and how to move forward, especially vis-a-vis -vis their relationship with UMNO. Okay, these are some of the impact of political parties. Okay, I have, I've gone half an hour and I have more slides. I have to talk a little faster. Okay, let's be quick here. There are three narratives. The first narrative is that it's all about the people, the leaders. Uh, Mahathir made the, was a game changer. Huh? Uh, he was the master strategist. Everybody felt comfortable working with him, or not everybody, but a lot of people. Najib was the liability. I've written this myself. He was, he, you know, he was the person who pushed people away. Mahathir was the person who pulled people. This is, the, this is a narrative based on this typical of understanding Malaysian politics that focuses on the issues of leadership. Of course, Anwar is seen as the reformer. But I have to tell you, in my personal view, Anwar may have helped to brought the opposition together. But in terms of the campaign itself, his role was symbolic, not substantive uh, in that regard. So we see, and of course, the woman, Rosma Mansour, if there is one person who people in UMNO hated, in UMNO hated, it was her. It was her. Uh, I remember sitting down with some machit in UMNO Gerakan, uh, the office, sort uh, of surrounded by these teachers in the northern Perak and in the area of Lawan, and they were, you know, they were telling me, she's not so bad. And then the other person says, please don't lie to this lady. <laughs> it was very amusing in that type of discussion. All right, here we go. The other explanation is that it has to do with the forces in the society itself. And I think each of these narratives can be genuine and, and can be seen to be meaningful. All right? So we see, uh, I put emphasis on this. I wrote this for New Mandela two years ago, uh, that there will be a tax revolt. Um, uh, you have to keep in mind of the 15 million voters, only 2.1 million paid taxes. So all of a sudden GST pay imposed taxes on, in, in a way that people had not seen before. Right? And 
This was seen now, but I think it wasn't, it was not just the idea of taxation, is that the government did not implement the GST effectively. <laughs> the implementation process compounded the impact of the GST on everyday people. So business people just kept putting GST on everything. And then they weren't able to get their, their uh, returns and claims. Sorry. So therefore, this, this created this momentum of, in, of increasing inflation. And GST became the easy target for that in this context. So we see a tax revolt. And as everybody knows, uh, studying Malaysia, we have high levels of inequality. Uh, and that 40% of the population live with what, less than 1,000 US dollars or 1,300 US dollars in the context of Australian dollars <laughs> a month. Right? And so they have a lot of precarity, especially given that household debt is over 80% uh, among large sections of the population. And the economic conditions really hurt lower middle class and lower class votes. These are the traditional class support for the BN. And, and what was distinct is, and I'll come to this in a little bit later, while 7 million Malaysians received BRIM, cash transfers, 7.1 million in this form of uh, BRIM process, huh? the, the view of BRIM changed. In 2013, it was a gift cash transfer. In 2018, it was my money being returned. <laughs> and not enough to live on <laughs> in that context. So, you know, I often say fool me once, maybe not fool me twice <laughs> in this context, <laughs> in this discussion. Importantly, this was a nationalist election, AKA the focus was on uh, uh, Malaysia first. <laughs> and, you know, we all understand as social scientists that everybody has complex identities. Sometimes they might be their, yeah, they might be their country, sometimes they might be their ethnicity, sometimes they might be their gender. <laughs> Malaysians have this level of complexity as well, even though there's a tendency to see everybody as Malay, Chinese, or the different communities. But in fact, we, surveys show that nationalism has always been a very strong source of identity within the society, especially even among the ethnic minorities. In fact, ironically, Malays have lower nationalist identity than Chinese Malaysians do, for example, in this context. So this, this use of nationalism, of saving the country, really pushed this aspect of identity. And it's an interesting thing in the contemporary context because nationalism is always being discussed as a kind of negative force, uh, anti-immigration and others. But here it was a positive force for bringing in more democratic co conditions uh, in that area. Institutional decline of UMNO, this is one of my explanations that I put a heavy emphasis on, that the party machinery had de deteriorated. <laughs> it didn't have the same level of effectiveness. And without the same level of one MDP slush fund to fund um, uh, hundreds of NGOs, <laughs> the, 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 this, the, real, the machinery just had decayed. And this had an impact on the ground. <laughs> Equally important is the, importance of, is the significance of the reform movement, the idea of the Bursay. Uh, uh, you know, the groups that began to try to surround the polling districts and demand their right to vote, all of this came through the education of a 10-year reform movement uh, that had an impact in society, that changed the narratives. And even those who didn't agree with a lot of the things in the reform movement were aware of them. And you would, you would hear, even from a typical UMNO person, in the middle of uh, Pahang, you know, uh, yes, uh, Najib does have a vote bank here. He cheats. These are the comments, I'm quoting exactly what they would say. Right? 
And I, this, is, this is an example of what we see in terms of the pressures, anti-corruption, the exposure of 1MDB, international opposition organization and strengthening. We all must remember, if, for the lessons of Malaysia, is that this is not something that came overnight. It is a, something that involved 20 years, some would say, since 1999 of opposition organizing and reconfiguring of itself. It is something that involves long, hard work, negotiation, and compromising and learning. This is something that is actually, that to get Pakatan Harapan to where it is, it needed these processes to evolve. Huh? Middle class globalization, precarity, and other things. I only precaution you that my own personal view, and I think people make a mistake when they say this is about everybody having this non-racial identity, and we don't think of ourselves as Malay anymore, we think of ourselves as Malaysian. These things coexist. And the racial dimensions of Malaysian society are still very strong. And keep in mind that Harapan's whole framing of the campaign was racialized. We need a Malay tsunami to, to join the other ethnic groups. Right? Uh, this doesn't mean that there aren't people who have, don't think about their ethnic identity in very different ways. But I think we should not, not overestimate uh, the, or not underestimate the pervasiveness of racial forces, even divisive racial forces in Malaysia society, especially given that these, these factors were part of the reasons the opposition did they so well, uh, especially PAS, which, which not only adopted a religious agenda, but was also racialized in this agenda as well. So, I think uh, we'll come back to this a little bit la later. But that says, as a more positive note, pluralism is seen to have won on many different ways. Now, he, this campaign narrative is quite important. Excuse me for giving you my back. Uh, and that is, we see a situation here where momentum played a role. This was also true in 2008, all right? The campaign was really the kind of forces that were there. And I want to pull out a couple of these things. And I know I'm running out of time. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about things that I think that are were important. Huh? Uh, this is, again, where I didn't fix the typo. Rafida instead of Radaim. Yeah, both of them are spelled wrong. This is what happens when I don't have enough sleep. Um, uh, so Rafida and Dime's presence on the platform was very important because it, it brought a lot of people who were in the business community who did not want to vote for Harapan, it decided it brought them across because they were seen as having potential economic safe hands. And this is what I found in my focus groups. Right? We see uh, a, the ineffectiveness of the ability for the, B, the BN strategies. Many of the BNs, Najib's strategies in 2018 were just repeats of 2013. And they weren't effective because the opposition neutralized them. So every time they said, oh, you're working with a Chinese person, you saw a picture of Mahathir. Mahathir's not Chinese. <laughs> and this is so people it neutralized this in, in very interesting sets of ways. <laughs> uh, we saw, and Ross could speak to more about this, the importance of that the opposition didn't have a very good social media campaign. <laughs> but just like in the Philippines, in, in the Philippi last Filipino elections. It was ordinary people sending the messages huh, that would, you would see. If there was one, one particular position 
that I would say described Malaysia's elections, it would be this. <laughs> Everywhere, this. Campaigns, cafes, this. Right? Everybody was looking at their phone in a very interesting sets of ways. Right? So these are some of the points of the campaign narrative, which I now really need to start going even faster than I was. <laughs> OK, I haven't even got to the second point. <laughs> uh, all right. Let me just make this key point, key issues of the, of the electoral turnover. Uh, the 24 hours was a period of instability. In the first few hours, it was not clear that the government would accept the result, particularly Najib. The police were out. Polling stations and FRU were around. There were a number of incidents that happened across the country. It was a very tense time. And I believe history will show that people inside the system, inside the inspector general of police, the <coughs> army, people associated with the royalty, saved the system by encouraging Najib not to go down an emergency route, but choosing a more to accept the result. But acceptance came slow. Because so after. You could see, as everybody was waiting for Mokhtar Hashim, everybody knows his name, he repeated it so many times, um, yeah, and the telling you the results, right? he would actually, um, you know, the results were being held back. Matir was very strategic. He claimed victory before, this, before the results could be stolen from him at 11.30, as all of this was happening. And so pushing the card, using the media, in a, in, a, in a very strategic way. Then came the attempt to try to pull defections over. Huh? Warasan phones went off. Everyone got suspicious. They were jumping. Huh? But they were all in lockdown. No calls, nothing. Huh? Uh, people were, uh, rumors were circulating. Huh? And offers of millions of ringgit were being made at the state level and at the federal level. Come to me, come to me, come to me. <laughs> and you saw a little of this, most obvious in Sabah. But this was happening across. And the more they delayed the, the swearing in, the more the offers were being made. <laughs> and this is why there was tremendous pressure to stop and to get the swearing in. And the king himself huh, took his time in doing that because there were differences and included in that were an attempt to offer the position to Wan Aziza, implicitly to Anwar, to, f to sow division within Harapan during that first 24 hours. Let me pull out a few things that I think are important, right? Is that, for me, why we didn't see in 1969 is that, unlike 1969, the Malay business elite was vested in a peaceful outcome in this election. They had economic interests to protect. We also see uh, that the issues of defections uh, and, and, and turnover, given the closeness of the margins, still remains a source of instability as we move forward. All right, now, <clears throat> let us, we know we have a uh, new Pakatan Harapan government. This is a uh, and the, some, mo, some of you in the campaign would have seen these on WhatsApp already, right? So but, uh, I, 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 I tried to 
pick the, pick the funnier ones that, are, that cap capture some of the sentiment. Eh? Let me just pull out a few things that I think are useful because for people who don't know Harapan, <laughs> most of these people are professional politicians. Uh, with some of them have professional backgrounds, but most of them are politicians. Right? Um, uh, the issue of the Malay composition of Harapan is, is being avidly discussed. And uh, we see it's a five-party coalition, although Harapan is four parties without Warasan. But we're going to see in the next 15 positions from cabinet, the East Malaysian component parties receiving um, higher level support. Huh? Uh, they, the things that keep them together are saving Malaysia and getting rid of Najib. The things that keep them apart, we'll come to in a moment. <laughs> uh, but keep in mind that this coalition is a relatively new coalition. It's less than one year formed. So there is a trust deficit inside. And that trust deficit comes from the past as well as currently, as they navigate these processes of uncertainty because there still is considerable uncertainty in the system. My view is at this juncture, Mahathir will likely get two years till 2020, of which the time uh, Anwar will likely assume the mantle of leadership. Obviously, there are things that we don't know, health being one of them in that context. The points of contention in the coalition are personality, and with that, of course, ambitions for power. <laughs> uh, which, by the way, are not just at the leadership level, they're at many of the levels of the party. Party jockeying, differences over the scope of political reform, economic policy, the role of religion and race, <laughs> such as the affirmative action policies and others. <laughs> this government is more technocratic. We'll use, I will, we will see much more outreach to civil society and technocratic expertise. It also has a very strong civil society component inside, people like Maria Chin. <laughs> uh, but I think, and they know that this, they have the weight of history and the weight of public expectations on them. They know this is an opportunity in that discussion. Uh, you, can, you can see that. But they also, I think many people in the system are cognizant of the constraints. My point here to, to emphasize is that there will be inevitable disappointments. Uh, this is a reality. But that it, some things will be disappointing for you, and others will be disappointing for you. <laughs> what you'll be disappointed in will be very different, because they have captured such a broad umbrella coalition. Uh, uh, so let's go quickly to the other aspects of this. We see the other actors involved is the new and old opposition. So I've already discussed BN, and you can see some of the details of what I project here. I expect MCA will sell their assets and become an independent. It's only one of them anyway. Um, I think now, in the case of Omno, I don't think Omno is dead. But now the battle for the party and the soul of the party has begun. And we've already seen this in the last week. Should we become more multi-ethnic? Should we not? So what are the dividers inside Amno? Race. How about Malay identity? I think you'll see old forces represented by Zahid, being Malay in religion, and new forces represented by Kairi, representing a sense of multi-ethnicism and trying to use Amno as a broader, uh, inclusive vehicle. The focus will be on challenging the ethnic, ethnic policies in the old politics, and a new politics is going to be focusing on governance issues. But while Kyrie may seem to have the 
upper hand in terms of the discourse. The reality is this is a huge battle inside. And it will become even more complicated if they decide to make the party illegal. Because then there will be new elections and maybe they'll lose more seats. Because remember, people only join UMNO for what they can get. Many of them in the system and this discussion. So many of them may not run anymore and that type of thing. One of my friends in UMNO told me, I do have friends in UMNO, and they told me <laughs> that they said, I'm so glad I'm, uh, I lost because I, I don't think I could have handled being an opposition leader, an opposition person. <laughs> I think that's very truthful <laughs> in that kind of this discussion. Um, <clears throat> I believe that race and religion will be the dominant opposition narrative, and it is also a weakness for the incumbent government because they have a hard time handling those sets of issues. We will see how it is. I also stress that there will be considerable resistance to reform inside the system. I'm going to close with five minutes. All right, And that is, I see this reform happening within the bureaucratic system. We, the dark forces of the Malaysian political system are very alive on social media. We've seen this in the last week. And they will continue to be forces that people will have to grapple with in this context. And why is that? Because for them, it was not about a political contest. It was about their livelihoods and their family and their future. And this sentiment is understandable. Because it, and, and there is a lot of anxiety among people who did vote for UMNO and what that means for them. And in some ways, the kind of zero-sum, we've beaten you perspective really doesn't acknowledge the need for outreach within the system itself, <laughs> that kind of sensitivities of what's happening. <clears throat> we will see an economic transformation. Now, I'm not going to do justice to this for Hal and, and Chandra here, um, but let me just put this in a couple things that, are, that I think are important to emphasize. The new government is more focused on the economy than it is on political reform, in my view. And I think we can see that with their prioritization of the new council huh? All right. and to try to stabilize markets. And one has to recognize that the economy speaks to the politics and vice versa, right? because these issues are interrelated. Some things I want to mention. We're going to have discussions of race and government policy and a rediscussion of NEP or a return to that, <laughs> a return to a new form. There is tensions over China. There's relationships between old and new cronies. Is this just going to be replacing the old one, the, the new ones with Najib, with the older ones from the Mahathir era? Or will it be something different? All right. We have the revenue drives. We have the issues of social inequality. We have the huge debt burden, the complete mismanagement of the GLCs. All right. These are all sections of which are going to be uh, focus of the the eminent council of persons, as well as key players in the, in the economy. I think one of the issues I look at that Najib faced is the problem of implementation of these policies. 
And the, the biggest challenge economically is what are the drivers for the economy in this global economy? And so we come back to this a little bit later, but my view is that he'll have a different relationship with Najib and, and Mahathir now. Of course, the easy part is putting Najib in jail. Maybe tomorrow, according to Kadir Jassin. <laughs> uh, but the 1MDB is huge, but we will see it's connected to GST, infrastructural projects, things I want you to, to be looking at. The scope of privatization, Najib's process was about privatizing the economy. GST restructuring, the relationship with the state governments, transparency of economic data, these are all things that we're gonna see as part of the transformation on issues of 1MDB and corruption. I, ex I expect the corruption focus will focus on the first two circles of the Najib group of people, not just her and him. Finally, we have the reversal of democratic decay. I'm not calling this a democratic transition because it isn't a transition. It's a change of government. But it is, a, it is an attempt to reverse the decay that one could argue happened from the 1970s. Long process and it's going to involve a long process. It's not something that can be done overnight. And there are different spheres of this. I don't have time to go into it, but perhaps in the discussion, because the, each of them involve a different dynamic. So for example, dealing with corruption. It's a little bit challenging to deal with corruption when some of the new cabinet have allegations of corruption. And these are challenges that the government has to deal with. How far are you going to go down, given how the system, this practice is so endemic? Who are you going to focus on? And should you focus on the politicians? How about the business people who pay the bribes? <laughs> you know, what, what, so there is going to be, I think, significant discussions about how this is going to evolve. <laughs> I project that some of these things are going to be longer, like electoral reform. That's the famous uh, former head of the Election Commission. Still technically, I think he still is, but he's definitely on his way out. <laughs> uh, maybe even going to jail, one never knows, um, in that context. So I'll, I can describe these a little bit later, but every one of these will involve different trajectories of reform. My bigger point to raise here is that some of these areas will have less reform than others given the nature of resistance, and that there are different people who pick this different part of the elephant as their expectations. People who focus on human rights will be disappointed. People who focus on the revising of the laws should be pretty happy. Some of them are much easier than others. And it is a huge process. It is a big hill to climb for the future. Okay, I'm closing now. I'm sorry to talk too long. 10 minutes over what I said I would. Uh, but let's just take the broader lessons from this. Malaysia reminds us that in this rather depressing world of Trump and Brexit and no comment on Australia, I'll let you say that to yourselves, <laughs> um, that we see a situation where good things can happen. <laughs> All right, And that people's power is not dead and that people can make, make a difference in a meaningful sense. Right? And that we can see, uh, and that Harapan 
did bring hope and brings inspires hope for a lot of people in this in these results. Um, but there is lessons of, uh, for hard work, both within the hard work beforehand, but now it's even harder work afterwards in that process. Uh, it is a complex, varied process, and multiple different arenas where things were happening. I cannot de-emphasize the significance of conservative forces within Malaysia. Um, but all things said, I am cautiously optimistic. And even in that, that inspires hope. Thank you very much for bearing with me. Thank you, Hal. We now enter the Q&A portion of the lecture, and the first question was a pretty simple one. Why, even a week before GE14, didn't we see this result coming? I think, first of all, a week before you wouldn't have been able to see it because it hadn't happened yet. Right? The, that's why I put the emphasis on the campaign. People coming out and changing their position, position beforehand. Right? I think this is uh, um, <clears throat> a very important dimension of what happened. Right? Uh, people who felt safe, right, when they saw other people adopting similar types of positions. Uh, that they might have had their anxieties inside, uh, but they did not want to express those. Uh, and so I think that's why I have to, I, part of my discussion is the campaign itself, uh, uh, which you wouldn't have seen a week before. The second thing to keep in mind is that, you know, 2013 left a very big imprint of disappointment among people. Uh, I cannot tell you how many of my Malaysian friends did not want to have hope. They didn't want to invest in the possibility of another victory because they didn't want to have to suffer the trauma that they had after 2013. <laughs> and so people held themselves back in this process, uh, um, in that context, uh, uh, in this area. But I think at a more fundamental level, all right, I think that people didn't give their fellow Malaysians enough credit. There's a tendency to, among urban voters especially, uh, especially people who are outside or more educated, to be very dismissive of people in the rural areas or people who are Malay communities. <laughs> this is something that's quite embedded. Oh, they're just going to be bought off. You know, you, this is the comments you would always see in Malaysia Kini about Sa the Sarawakians in this context. And I think, having studied elections now for over 20 years in Malaysia, I've always understood that people voted in the rural areas for what was in their interest, what they saw. It was a, it was a rational choice. It wasn't just about the money that was being given. It was about the fact that their, their whole lives, for example, in these rural areas were transformed and improved by the BN government. And so they were rewarding them for giving them the roads and giving them the services that were not there in their lifetimes. Right? It was a and I think you know the zero sum polarization of the system often dismissed kind of a, a communication or an understanding of the other side. And this is where you know when I talk about the need for outreach to people who are in the system now, I do so because. They're not, they're, their intention is not to be, their intent, they're just as nationalistic as everybody else. <laughs> they care about the country. <laughs> uh, they care about um, where the country is moving forward and, uh, and they're making their choices based on those rational things of security within the system. 
And keep in mind that the system has used fear and insecurity for decades uh, uh, in this context. Uh, so I think part of it is, is the, a lack of understanding of the others in the society. It even if, I, I mean, I was telling Ross is that, uh, that one area I really had wrong was Sarawak in the rural areas right, in that context. I, mean, I went to Sarike and I, I didn't predict, I said, no way, this guy is going to spend five million for BN. There's no way they can win the seat. And they did. <laughs> So I think that, you know, we, it's assumptions we have to fight <laughs> in that context. Uh, uh, and so these are combination of factors. Sorry, long answer, Ross. The next question was prefaced with a couple of comments. Firstly, that if Pakadan Harapan doesn't keep its campaign promises, then that certainly wouldn't make it unique amongst democratic governments. Secondly, the questioner also highlighted the kind of ambiguous role that Mahathir Mohamed is playing in the new government, and drawing attention to the fact that he did so much damage to Malaysia's institutions the last time he was Prime Minister. The question was about the outlook for Sarawak state politics. Can the Pakatan Harapan government make inroads ahead of the Sarawak state elections coming up in a couple of years' time? Well, I did make a pretty good prediction of Sarawak in 2016. And I also, uh, my last piece before the election was entitled Political Storm is Coming, and it, and it came <laughs> in that type of thing. But I would say this, in this election, I would say this, two, th two things. First of all, uh, on your first issue about democracy, um, I, I'm not sure Malaysia can fully be quite seen as democratic yet in some of the institutions. It needs to, the reforms have to push it at a higher level. It's, all, it's moving in that direction. The second thing is, is I think that I disagree with you, and I know other people would. Everybody blames Mahathir for the lack of democracy in the country. I think this happened, this began after 1969. A lot of these things, the University College Acts and other things, were introduced in the 70s, not in the 80s. Although 80s, Mahathir did a lot of damage. <laughs> but I think, you know, where it begins, I think, has to go back to the 70s <laughs> in this context, uh, in my view. <laughs> um, now, in terms of East Malaysia, the things to look at will be how much they deal with the royalty issue. Um, I think the government has put itself in a very difficult position vis-a-vis -vis the royalty because of the revenue demands. As, as they remove the GST, it'll be very difficult for them to, at the same time, simultaneously deal with paying royalties to the states, because, given the level of debt that exists within the system. So my sense is that they do have three years and so they will probably stagger some of these shifts and changes in that context. Um, a lot is going to depend on the success of Mahathir, who is a man in a hurry, to try to introduce economic reforms and whether or not they will be at least some substantive political reforms. You have to, I give them a lot of credit in 10 days. They've done a lot. Okay, <laughs> um, in that context. Uh, and if they continue even partially of this momentum, they put them in a strong position. My view is that Sarawak will ultimately vote probably uh, with whoever's in power or whoever's seen to stay in power. <laughs> so uh, that, means, that means that maybe the relationship with PBB uh, and the government is probably going to shift. But there is a lot of resistance to that among DAP, Sarawak, <laughs> um, and so I think this is something that is going to take, uh, it's going to put a lot of strain on the coalition. Uh, um, if there is significant movement and decentralization of state power, and one of the things I didn't have enough time to talk about in my reforms is that I do expect there's going to be more decentralization of power from the federal to the state. 
because of these pressures that are coming from these state governments. Uh, if there is that, I think that they'll be in a better position uh, to, to win. Uh, you know, right now, I don't see the opposition forces, especially UMNO and PBB, being able to, con to get a narrative that can put them back into the driver's seat for federal power and state power, yet. But as we've learned in Malaysia, anything can happen. <laughs> I think Greg was next, sir. The next question covered a few issues. First, given the big swing towards the opposition, shouldn't pass regard its performance in GE14 as a bit of a disappointment? Second, what should we expect from pass in opposition? And should we expect it to double down on a Malay first and hardline Islamic agenda? Um, it's about perception. See, the media was portraying PAS as being wiped out. <laughs> Invoke was saying PAS was going to be uh, wiped out. I was not. Huh? I said PAS will win <laughs> in that situation because I could see that in the ground. Huh? But it wasn't sure how much it would win in terms of the three-corner dynamic and how much UMNO vote would come to it because that's made some of the analysis difficult to kind of do on the ground. Um, so when we see PAS doing better than people expected, the assumption was that they were going to get zero. <laughs> All right. Now, but, uh, Greg, you make a very excellent point, is that their position in terms of their overall vote and their overall potential that they could have won is much less. If you imagine that they were still in the coalition, hmm, their number of seats would be 40. <laughs> if they had stayed in Pakatan Harapan, huh, they would have done much better than if they were out. Huh? But they didn't care about that because all Hadi cares about is what he considers his religious agenda, which is a very deeply conservative agenda. Uh, and, that, and so he felt, they felt, uh, at least in the conversations I've had with members of them, is that they felt that choosing UMNO, choosing that was a better strategy to articulate that agenda within the system. Uh, but now they're gonna have to reconfigure it. Uh, and they also have to deal with the fact that their political base, many of the people who voted for them, did not vote necessarily for their agenda, but voted against UMNO. <laughs> and they have the ch allegations of corruption inside the party and resources, which are going to strain this, given the case that's coming with uh, Claire and others. <laughs> so I think you know, as we look at political Islam, they're in a stronger position, but they're still going to be weak. Uh, in that context. Hadi's lead, Hadi is his leadership. Uh, it, it, he is he's strengthened by winning Tringanu, but he hasn't necessarily, he has to deal with pressures inside his party. And this, I think, will happen and play out in the next Muktamar in terms of the leadership dimensions. Uh, and so I'd, I still see PAS as being somewhat inward looking. Many in PAS are already asking the question. Could we have won more if we would have taken a different point huh? in that different strategy? Uh, but PAS as a party, Greg, has shifted given the shit in the last few years. It's moved away from a party based purely on religion and identity to also being a party based on patronage and money. Huh? Uh, and so this is actually shifting the way PAS operates. Um, and that's also creating tensions within the party itself. Next up was a quick question on what changes in foreign policy we should expect under Pakatan Harapan. I think there are three arenas that we should focus on. I think Mahathir 
will continue his uh, issues of Palestine and Israel. <laughs> uh, this was going to be, uh, I think, come out very strongly. Uh, I think we're going to see a, a reconfigured relationship with Singapore, <laughs> um, especially deals like the high-speed rail. Uh, people who overhugged, uh, the, I overhugged Najib will have to face some sort of uh, clean, cleansing response, <laughs> that type of thing, <laughs> and that type of discussion. <laughs> um, I mean, I think ultimately there probably will be a coming up to terms with China, but I think that uh, uh, there will be some difficult periods of time, and I think this is broadly an issue Southeast Asia, uh, I was discussing this this morning, Southeast Asia is facing, and that is how does, you know, how do smaller countries in Southeast Asia deal with a very aggressive and domineering China. Um, and I think Matir, you know, his frame of reference is that is Malaysia is the one, is the example, and, and is seen as a very strong player. And it would like to be on equal footing, at least, where China doesn't perceive these things as on equal footing now. So I think this is going to be somewhat of a reconfiguration. I expect there'll be more outreach to Japan in an attempt to diversify business interests and their business investments. Um, and a lot of his personal, you know, Mahathir will determine a lot of the foreign policy because that's what he did during his, his, his tenure. But he's only going to be there for a long, a short period of time. So I don't see foreign policy being as a driver as much because I think the focus is going to be very inward in these economic and political dimensions. And, uh, and as a result, I think, you know, we're going to probably see some very colorful remarks, uh, uh, but at the same juncture, uh, I think the main thrust will be to put Malaysia on the international map again. And I think he's already done that. Our next question returned to Sarawak. Our questioner noted that many people there would say that their former chief minister, Taib Mahmood, was many times more corrupt than Najib ever was. Nevertheless, he's known for having a close personal and political relationship with Mahathir Mohamad. What can we expect then in terms of accountability for corruption in Sarawak? Well, my first response to you, Michael, is that we don't know yet if he's the most corrupt person. <laughs> Many things are being found in handbags and others. <laughs> uh, um, so I, I, that's my first point. <laughs> my second point is, is that I think that there are other players that are competing with him that are just north of him <laughs> uh, um, in, say, Sabah, <laughs> um, that I think are also on the, on the spectrum of competition for corruption <laughs> and the most corrupt individual. I think there's more documentation of time, eh? because this has been a long time coming uh, in terms of this process. My own view is what I was trying to imply earlier, is that this is a question of expectations. For many people, there is an expectation that Taib will be targeted. Uh, my sense is the focus will not be on him, but on Najib. And as a consequence, expectations for many Sarawakians potentially may not be met. It is, it is clear already, given the discourse that we've seen in the last 10 days, that his name keeps coming up <laughs> and pressure is being placed on. 
And this is exactly what I was trying to describe to you, uh, although probably with not enough depth, was this idea of political contestation over where the corruption focus should be. There's unanimity on Najib. There's not on Thai. But I would say this. Mahathir's around for a few years, but the government has been elected for five. So I think there may be sources, alternative sources, that may be pushing this. So uh, I think in this area, my sense is don't expect patience uh, and don't expect immediate results. Now, the question becomes here, however, is that at a bigger level besides Thai, is that unfortunately, Michael, as you well know, the number of people who are guilty of corruption is a lot, a lot, <laughs> a lot. Uh, and I have already written for the need for amnesty at the lower ranks right? and the move forward and strengthening of institutions, right? a way to move on in that context. I don't know how much of the past can be digged up in this process to move towards a future that is, because you're going to only create polarization and anonymity in the system. I'm not saying making a judgment on time. I'm just saying that more broadly, this is a big difficult issue to navigate, right? Because it involves uh, so deep in the system. And it's, not as a, and it's not just the civil servants or politicians, right? The focus is always on them, but it's also the business people and the business community that, that are also the players in this, in this, in this dynamic. Uh, so I, I am not as optimistic that it's going to be deep. And my, if I was going to be a betting person, which of course, you know, political scientists always predict certain things wrong, uh, I would say that Thai probably is going to be seen as something not getting immediate attention, despite the, the tension that people are bringing to him. That would be my sense. Uh, there's so many handbags to find. <laughs> okay, here we took a few more questions in a row. The first was on the issue of Sarawak and why there was a disconnect between the state result from 2016, in which Barisan National won, and the big swing towards the opposition in GE14. The second was about the new Minister for Education, Mazli Mali. He's a scholar of Islam whom some regard as being a bit of an Islamist, although there are others who would see him as a reformer. Where does the balance lie and how should we read his appointment? The next was more broadly on the issue of Islamization and whether the change in government will arrest or perhaps reverse Malaysia's slide to a more hardline form of official Islam. Finally, political transitions in the Philippines in 1986 or Indonesia in 1998 were accompanied by serious economic crises. Malaysia's economy, by contrast, seems to be doing okay. In this context, how is Pakatan Harapan going to work through its own internal divisions on things like affirmative action for the Malay majority and clearing out Malaysia's state-owned enterprises, which are known as GLCs? So, Sarawak, uh, 2016, it was very much about Adinan. Okay? He, he was the one who put Sarawak on the map, embraced the kind of Sarawak autonomy discussion. I think their seats have happened, but many Sarawakians voted in 2018, and maybe Michael can speak to this also later, is that it was, the, it was a repudiation of, of the national government, the federal government, not the state government. Huh? So the state government still plays out in different sets of ways, but I do think PBB and, is on notice <laughs> in that context. Your second question was, um, 
get out. So my personal view is we should give Dr. Mosley a chance, see what he does, right? Don't judge him from what, what he, he's perceived as. And I also think that this goes back to what people are, how people perceive this, and it connects into the Islamization question. Among many parts of Malaysia, especially among non-Muslims, there is a lot of anti-Muslim feeling. Uh, and this is not constructive in a multi-ethnic society uh, because they, they demonize the faith. And then this, of course, and then this, and you have a similar response back to non-Muslims. And that has been a narrative that's been played out for decades, but particularly under Najib's five years, he's been using this and harping on this in very significant ways. Uh, I think that in order to create the bridges you need to have those important discussions among Muslims about education, someone like Dr. Masli is a bridge. <laughs> uh, he's somebody who's Western educated and others. So I would rather, my personal view is, let's give the guy a chance, see what he does. Huh? and recognize that you need a bridge in this conversation, especially bringing you to the next question about how to deal with Islamization. Because it involves, it's not just Islam, it's about certain types of Islam in, 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 and how in certain spheres. Uh, and a lot of it is gonna be focused on the education sphere and the money and the resources that are being played there. Uh, the young lady asked me a few moments ago about a strategic relationship that is going to change. I think the relationship with the Saudi Arabia is going to shift. <laughs> uh, and, and Saudi influence in that context, uh, in that area. Oh, I, I would, in my personal view, I hope it shifts. <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of hope in this discussion that one has to acknowledge, right? Um, in that area. So Islamization is going to be, it, it's going to be, everyone is looking, the Malay community is looking who will they appoint as the religious minister? The talk is that they were going to make Nick Omar, Nick Aziz's son, as a senator and bring him in to be symbolic in that process. And that's a very important bridge builder. You need to build confidence in these particular areas. So it is about having people who understand those debates and issues. But that doesn't mean there aren't real differences over this area. There are. Now, Malaysia's economy is doing well in terms of numbers, but in terms of fundamentals, this is where you and I disagree, Hal. It's no, not. No, I'm, I'm not saying it's great. No, 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 but I mean. But compared to Indonesia and the Philippines and their big, big political events. It's oh, no, compared, yeah, yeah, that much help. That was the point I was making. All right, uh, fair enough, fair enough. I think that's fair. But um, what I would say is that uh, Najib has a, a good legacy. Okay, and, then, and you can quote me on this. Uh, I know some media are like, what? She's saying something good about Najib? But yeah, I'm saying the good legacy is that he moved the country towards a more needs-based social policy. It wasn't my view that cash transfers weren't effective because they did not have follow-through and they were so highly politicized. But it, was a, but it became a needs-based as opposed to an ethnic-based policy. So the foundations of needs-based policy will be one of the positive features of Najib's re reflection and his tenure. Now, there has to be a meaningful discussion about social democratic policy and affirmative action. And it probably won't be as, as um, kind of Malay's this, Bhuiputra's this versus others, but that doesn't mean it cannot be sensitive to ethnicized concerns. Huh? Um, uh, in ethnic communities. So my sense is that there are people already, like Jomo, or Professor Prof Jomo, inside, who have who have already suggesting uh, ideas. Huh? Um, and I think there's going to be uh, con 
considerable discussion of this, uh, that, and a new type of policy is going to emerge, which is going to talk about addressing these bigger issues that the world are facing, which is social mobility. Um, and what is happening is not just the precarity, but the limited social mobility among many parts of the Bumiputra communities. And, the, and given that Sabah, has, uh, is, is very politically important. A lot of attention is going to focus on Sabah and Sarawak in that equation. So I think it, it'll be rethinking how, huh? um, uh, how the unique contextual challenges, uh, and, and not as a simple, a more kind of uh, ethnic quota type of policy, uh, with more needs-based components inside. I think that they're going unlike in the NEP, which had a needs-based component, it was the race component that was given. I think the new policy that will be formed will have ethnic dimensions, but I think the needs part will be given more priority. Thank you. Thanks to the audience. That was Bridget Welsh speaking at the Australian National University on the 21st of May, 2018. Don't forget, you can sign up to receive updates on all of New Mandala's audio releases at iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Thanks for listening.